Good evening, friends. Welcome to Valley Writers Read, where only local Valley writers get to read their stories. And tonight, a fiction story written by Fresno City College instructor Judy Ryan, who's been on our show many times, not only as a writer, but also as a reader. Judy entitles her story, Double Plot. And so here she is, Judy Ryan reading, Double Plot. Here's Judy. The Double Plot The first time I saw the young man in Nikes that didn't lace, it was like hearing that eerie music during a murder mystery when you're at the theater and the young woman on the screen is opening the refrigerator door and doesn't have a clue. Something terrifying is about to happen, but you know something terrifying is about to happen because you have that music, and the music says it all straight to the bone. And it was that music running through my head when I first saw the young man in Nikes that didn't lace. I watched him through the window of the barber shop where I work. My boss, Jackson, saw him too, so we stood there, two barbers and one head of hair. I cut walk-ins, and there weren't any at the time. What you should know about Jackson's barbershop is that the blinds of the window are always full up, compact and tight like spinster lips, narrow and yellow from a compressed lack of use. Full up and tight open on holidays when the streets are empty, at night when the shop is closed, during our breaks when we wander down the town. Jackson didn't care that people could see in. The whole idea was that we could see out any time we wanted. So I watched freely as a young man in Nikes that didn't lace came out of the Ace Hardware, and that was the first time I saw him. He glanced to the left and right, Then he looked straight into our little shop, right into our window, directly into Jackson's eyes. It didn't last all that long, but I saw it. Then they both looked away, Jackson down to brush tiny hairs from the back of the neck in front of him, the young man toward his truck, which he climbed into, a movement smooth and practiced. I expected him to make tire-peeling noises as he headed out. He just looked like the kind of person who would do that, but the movement of the truck mirrored the movement of his body, unruffled and sleek. I leaned toward the window to get a better view. When that vantage was used up, I slipped outside the shop, walked toward the Ace Hardware, and followed the trail the young man had left. Couldn't help myself. Jackson didn't appear to be paying attention, but as I left, I noticed he wasn't talking, and that struck me as unusual. Meanwhile, the truck moved down the main street. It's called Main Street, but we tend to call it the Main Street, since any other street in our little town is a far cry from primary importance. The bed of the young man's truck was covered with a cab that had a darkened window, but the morning sun hit it hard, and I could see a large, long mass set firmly in the bed of the truck, filling the back of the pickup. I pondered what that could be only briefly at the time. Later, I would carry the image of this long mass with me and review it carefully. 
I stood on the walk and watched until the truck was tiny and distant as it rounded the corner out of the main street. Then I walked into the ace. The owner was pulling away from his own window, so I knew he had also been watching the young man with Nikes that didn't lace. Who was that guy? I asked. Used to live here. Just passing through then? Cleaning up was all he said, and that made no sense to me at all. The second time I saw the young man in Nikes that didn't lace was when he appeared out of nowhere in the middle of a Dorfman family reunion in what we laughingly call Central Park, a patch of grass across from the courthouse. The Dorfman twins are an odd sibling couple in their 80s, neither ever married, and they comprise the sum total of the Dorfman clan as we know it. Still, to keep alive the spirit of what we all know will soon be extinct, the entire town participates in their summer reunion. The twins pass around news of the reunion casually to places of business on the main street, and, at the appointed time, we all show up to fill in the blanks deceased relatives had left years ago. In return, we get fried chicken, the best in town. To the twins, the annual reunion feels like it did when they were little when the reunions were actually filled with numerous but not prolific Dorfmans, when they played with other children, children who eventually passed away, mostly in odd ways, every one. And so it is that this sexless couple, spoken of always as a unit, never as individuals, the Dorfman twins, commemorate a past that has already pretty much died out. But they seem to do it without regret, and so it's as much a celebration of the present as anything else and we're not above making people feel good when fried chicken is involved. He was picking at a drumstick, the young man in Nikes that didn't lace, the second time that I saw him. He was sitting on the picnic table with one foot on the bench, the other on the ground. He was talking with five or six of the local males. A couple more were tending the barbecue chicken, but they kept their hand in the conversation. People in Foothill tend to divide naturally by gender. I was entrenched in a circle of females on lawn chairs, away from the barbecue, but I could see the heat drifting out in waves, caught by the occasional independent breeze. I could barely hear the men's conversation. "'Kid saved me five hundred dollars,' old Henry said, referring to the young man with Nikes that didn't lace. And they all laughed. "'What did he mean by that?' I asked Jenna, as she cut tender pieces of chicken onto her grandson's plate." "'Good Lord, what is he doing here?' she said, noticing the young man with Nikes that didn't lace. But she laughed also. "'Well, let's see. What did he mean by that? Well, "'How long has it been, Lavinia?' Lavinia had set to calculating, but Jenna didn't wait. "'Okay, Henry put $500 in a jar the day his daughter turned 13 "'and said it was hers if she didn't kiss a boy until after her 16th birthday.' That jar stood there over two years, and one week before she turned 16, the girl walks into the den, takes the jar off the shelf, and empties it on her dad's desk, scoops it up, and hands the money over to her dad. She only went on one date with that boy, but I guess that's all it took. Not an ounce of regret she had. Ever since Henry calls him the kid who saved him 500 bucks. Lavinia had abandoned the counting of years to address the present. The boy left soon after making that 500, she said. I haven't seen him since. Odd he's here now. I took over the figuring how long it had been. Henry's daughter had graduated from State College two years before and was teaching school at Lodi. 
He must have been gone a good seven years, I said. Sounds right, Lavinia said. Came here with his mother when he was seven. Then she leaned into me and whispered, WPP. I looked toward Jenna, still cutting chicken. Witness protection program, she explained, making no effort to modify her voice. Well, we don't know that for sure. We just think that's what it was. So private, so secretive his mom was. So out of place. She just showed up with this little quiet boy. Never told us a word about her past, who her people were, where she came from, who the boy's father was. A woman with no past, that's what she was, Lavinia confirmed. In my lifetime, I've never known a person more determined to keep to herself. She was happy enough that way and happy here. Then why'd she leave, I asked. Oh, she left because she died, Jen announced bluntly as she passed the chicken and corn to her grandson, who had little more than a passing interest in dead poultry. That boss of yours, Jackson, never took to her. Did you know that? Well, I said, this is all before I got here. Well, this woman with the little boy was having an affair with Jackson's dad. And for the first time, Jenna seemed uncomfortable with the subject. Oh, that's why Jackson didn't like her, she said. His dad was still married at the time. You know they'd been separated for years, Lavinia said. Jackson's folks. And that same as divorced in my book. You don't want to make the same mistake we all did back then. No one blamed Jackson for not liking that whole situation, but he was wrong. We was all wrong. See, Jackson's own mother up and ran away. Jackson turned 16, and the day after his birthday, she left. It was like she was saving it up, saving up leaving. Both Jackson and his dad seemed to know it was coming, like maybe she had tipped them off. But she never divorced his father. Just left them both, and not for a man. She left him for a city. San Francisco. Now, Jackson was always a good son, mind you. Lavinia, you tell her if I'm wrong. She's not wrong. He was caught in the middle of his folks, but he was as true to both of them as true as he could be. He visited his mother in San Francisco every chance he had. I think she waited till he was 16 so he'd have his own car for that very purpose, Jenna said. So he could drive out and see her, only got mad at his mom once that I can recall. Oh, I remember that, Lavinia said, that cemetery plot she bought. Yep, Jackson just hit the roof. He was well into his 30s by then, but it was the only time I saw him register displeasure when it came to his mother. I still remember his reaction. By then he had the barbershop and was kicking around the place and complaining to every darn person that walked in. Lavinia has a knack for mimicry, and this was her cue. She towed the dirt roughly and started muttering, After 15 years, I figure they probably won't never get back together again in this life, but I sure as hell assume, since they were still married, that she would join him at that damn cemetery he bought. Jenna's grandson was amused and proceeded to dump the cut-up chicken into the grass. It was inevitable from the way he insisted on holding the plate. Jenna didn't seem to notice. I had seen her like that, giving change to a homeless man who had wandered into town. It's like she does what needs to be done to facilitate, but whether the recipient takes advantage is up to him. The chicken just sat on the ground, an invitation to any passing dog. None of us quite knew how to respond to Jackson being so mad about his mother making her own burial arrangements. 
Turns out his dad's biggest fear, worse than her leaving him, worse than being alone in life, was being alone in death and being consigned alone to a two-person grave. Sleeping solo in a double plot, she sang in a country twang, and then she seemed to regret it. Jackson's a good son, she went on. Way things are, I suspect he'll use the other half of that plot his own self if things continue as they are. He's not married yet, can't imagine that changing. Jenna, where do you get this stuff? Some kind of weird incest, a father and son in the same grave plot? People around here just don't do that sort of thing. Another good idea buried in small-town prudery, she responded. But then she moved on to the affair he had with the mother of the boy who saved Henry 500 bucks. Oh, it was quite an odd love affair, Jenna said. She was younger than Jackson's dad by far. But I was waiting on her one day when the old man walked in the store, and let me tell you, she just lit up like Christmas. Oh, she loved him. You don't get that look any other way. It was more than mutual need, though heaven knows they were both needy enough. It was just a bad deal all around. None of us knew she was sick. She was so to herself. Then it looked like Jackson's dad was moving into her place. I don't mean to be judgmental or anything, but that was just hard to take after all those years of being alone in that house. We all thought he should have taken the time to divorce and then marry her properly, not just move in like this was some big city and no one would notice. Should have just married the woman, let us all in on it. We would have accepted it better. Well, fact is, Lavinia added as Jenna continued, she didn't last too long after that. We just never knew she was so sick. And then she died and it all made sense. He was taking care of her. Later he told Jackson it was the best five months of his life. You know the time he was the happiest? Jackson always seemed to pity his dad, you know. Never seen a son feel so bad about his old man as Jackson did. It killed him that we talked about his dad. And we did, you know. I'll be paying for that in the next life. Well, we figured out eventually, Jenna. You know that she was sick. Cancer. I guess she had it when she first showed up here. It took its toll, let me tell you. Well, what happened to the boy then, I asked. Oh, he moved off to Fresno. Don't know if... There was someone he knew there, or if he was on his own, he was just barely 16. But he seemed able to take care of himself. No one interfered. I guess we were all in shock. It happened so fast, within a week, and he was gone. And then we all turned toward the barbecue to discover that he was gone again. The young man in Nikes that didn't lace, the boy who saved Henry 500 bucks, had disappeared, and Jackson was gone as well. Now, this wouldn't have bothered me, but for two things. One, Jackson's always the last to leave a party of any kind, including the Dorfman reunions. And two, when I returned to the shop to work, he wasn't there. He wasn't there, and the door was locked. He wasn't there, the door was locked, and there were two people on the bench outside the door waiting for haircuts. I don't have a key or a clue what was holding him up, so my excuses to them were lame. As it happened, no one was in much of a hurry. So I just sat on the curb with them and waited as well. And then I saw him. For the third time in my life, the young man in Nikes that didn't lace. He was in his truck rumbling smoothly down the street. It was a fleeting moment, but the three of us on the step stared as the truck passed. Then, without warning, 
Jackson was unlocking the shop and stepping inside before we even knew he was there. He didn't try to apologize or explain, just went to work like it was nothing at all. Later, when the day was over, he asked me to drive him to the park, explaining that his truck was still there. I dropped him off. The patch of grass was deserted now, the reunion just another memory, like the vast Dorfman clan itself. Jackson carried a flashlight to the truck. So the next morning, when Sheriff McKinney showed up at Jackson's barbershop and said he was there about the cemetery, I was probably the only one in the room who didn't seem surprised. Now I should tell you about our cemetery. We're real proud of our cemetery. Before I moved to Foothill, I was content to be buried anywhere. Cemeteries were pretty much the same to me, even when they are different. Like slipping into a strange church when you're out of town and still being able to worship. Lately, though, Foothill Family Cemetery has claimed my heart. My own dad was buried in a military plot with regulation headstone of exact uniform dimension. There was never a blade of grass out of place. Ah, but the Foothill Family Cemetery is like a theme cemetery, only with no themes, if that makes sense. Each family area is given free reign, no rules or restrictions, no attempts towards uniformity. In fact, there's a sense of pride in just the opposite, a random concourse of community dead. The only rule seems to be that each gravesite is given access to water. And there are some lovely plants, some gently pruned, others given wild access to ground and stone. Some plots choose to ignore watering altogether, going for the high desert quality, complete with odd cacti, a struggling Joshua tree, and what locals here consider weeds. No one complains. Well, that's not entirely true. There was a complaint registered once about spearmint taking over. The offending party was understanding, however, and though unwilling to dispense with the spearmint motif, at least agreed to pull it back and box it in, and tranquility was again restored at the Foothill Family Cemetery. Several plots stand out in my mind. One belongs to Terry Rodriguez's son, buried eight years ago. His picture a handsome ten-year-old, somewhat bloated from a futile treatment of prednisone, smiles mischievously from the headstone. His mother collected just about every ceramic Disney animal imaginable, and then she reverently placed them, emanating like streams of sun rays from the bright center of the affable headstone. It feels like entering a cartoon version of the Adoration of the Magi, but it fits him. I know this, though I never met him. Jackson's father is buried here. I remember seeing his grave on my first trip to the benches. It's the benches, I guess, that pulls the whole place together. Every plot has its own bench. It's surprising to stumble on all these different kinds of benches, some deliberately matching the decor of the plot. Some benches take on an importance beyond the headstone. It's the most wonderful place in Foothill to sit, and on a warm autumn day or in early spring... Probably the best place in the world to sit. When I told Jackson his father's bench was probably my favorite, he was pleased. Said he made it himself. It was made of twigs and had a moss seat. So I know this cemetery, I know it well. And when Sheriff McKinney strolled in and said, I think you should know that there's been some activity at the cemetery yesterday evening, and I gave him my full attention. 
Now, when you watch Law and Order, when the police come around, all the people keep working. They're taking out trash or filing or walking to school, and they just keep on with what they're doing, like a visit from the cops happens once every couple hours, and to give them your full attention would mean losing your job or something. Well, it's not like that here. If the sheriff did show up every couple hours to talk about the weather, and if we were, say, in the middle of an audit or a funeral or the last inning of a double header, you better believe we'd stop everything and give the local constabulary our full attention, and that's the primary difference between us and New York. But when Sheriff McKinney walked in the shop and said what he said, Jackson just kept cutting hair, barely looking up. This isn't like Jackson, and it isn't like us. But I dropped what I was doing and sat at the next station, focused entirely on the sheriff. The result was that he spoke toward me, and I wondered if he was even aware that he was directing his comments to a person who was not Jackson. I think you should know that there was some activity at the cemetery yesterday evening. He said it twice, like maybe Jackson hadn't heard. Jackson just kept cutting. Far as I can tell, there's been a grave messed with. Messed with? This was from Fred, Jackson's haircut. He had to pull himself out of the head-still position to ask the question. Far as I can tell. What? Kids? I don't think so. Maybe. Damn, it's so weird. Whoever did it really went to town, but only on one grave. Last night, Kuiper's dog just went nuts. Kuiper did everything to quiet that animal. Finally, he up and calls us, says something must be happening in the cemetery beyond his field, maybe a mountain lion or something. It's a strange man who calls the sheriff to complain about his own dog, Jackson said. McKinney ignored that. We've been having spottings of mountain lions, so I get what I need, and I hustle up there expecting to find one. Instead, I hear some scuffling and see the tail end of one or two guys breaking out hell-bent for bear. Well, sure, I chased after them, but it was cold dark, and I never did catch up. Hell, they could have circled me five times, for all I know my flashlight crapped out on me. Why are you bringing this to me, Jackson asked. You think I was one of those guys? He was done cutting now and looking straight up at Jake McKinney. Oh, no, man, I don't think it was you. Good grief. Then why are you here? It was your dad's grave was messed with. We all just watched Jackson, waiting for a reaction. He was staring at his hands in the mirror. Good Lord, Fred said. Why? I was hoping you could help answer that, McKinney said to Jackson. There's nothing in that grave anyone would want, he replied. Well, I think the whole plot may have been disturbed. You mean the coffin brought up and everything? Fred seemed more concerned than Jackson. Well, by that afternoon, the entire town was more concerned than Jackson. It doesn't take long for word of mysterious criminal activity to circle Foothill. We speculated the rest of the day. Every person that walked in the barber shop had a theory. Everything from bears to L.A. gang members, though... None of us had ever really seen an L.A. gang member in Foothill, and none of us could think of why an L.A. gang member would go to the trouble to travel out here and mess with Jackson's dad's grave. Still, it made for interesting speculation. But by then, unknown to the others, for the fourth time in my life, I had already seen the young man in Nikes that didn't lace. It gets hot here in the summer, and I like to walk, so I walk either late at night or early in the morning when it's cool. Either way, it's walking in the dark, and on a full moon, which this happened to be, I like that. And so it was, the night of the picnic, I headed off with my stick and my hound Jesse. 
We hadn't gone more than a mile when headlights flashed across me from behind, and I knew instinctively it was the young man in Nike's. His pickup rumbled proudly and evenly passed me down the road. His pace was deliberate, but not fast. In the distance, a large dog barked wildly, and I know now it was Kuiper's dog. I moved to the side and nodded as is our way, but I couldn't see inside the cab, and I don't know if he saw me. But I did notice one very important thing. The bed of the truck under the cab was empty. Whatever had been there before, that long, dark object filling the back of the pickup was gone. The lightness of the truck, the pace of the driver, felt like it was key to a job completed, a burden lifted. At least that was my sense of it all. And he was gone, struck out for the highway, clearly. It was the last time I would see the young man in Nikes that didn't lace, the fourth and final time, and there was something about this I regretted like I would miss this passing stranger. I thought about this for a moment, still standing in the brush, and then I was suddenly aware of another car moving down the road. I grabbed Jesse back and waited. It was Jackson's pickup. Both trucks had come from the direction of the cemetery, though I hadn't put that together until later that morning when the sheriff showed up. And so the day progressed with everyone but Jackson himself trying to figure out who the two men were Sheriff McKinney had chased away from a particular plot at the Foothill Family Cemetery. Then the next day, the sheriff showed up at the shop again. It was early. Donuts and magazines were out on the checkered cloth over the table by the door. The coffee maker was percolating away. Jackson and I were getting ready for the day. I looked as busy as I could, rearranging my station, hoping to stay invisible so I wouldn't be asked politely to leave so Jackson and the sheriff could talk privately. There was no need. This time, McKinney walked straight to Jackson, looked him in the face, and said, I want you to tell me it's okay to dig up Jonah's coffin so I can figure out what those guys were up to. No. Maybe he thought no further explanation was needed. I've dug all around it, searched the surrounding area, talked to people who lived nearby. I'm thinking going into the plot itself will yield some evidence I can work with. You'd have to dig mighty deep, Jake. It was a subject too painful for Jackson to pursue, how he had insisted on a double plot and asked for his dad to be buried the deepest, then discovered his mother had purchased a plot outside San Francisco and had no intention of making Foothill Family Cemetery her final resting place. Everyone knew how much it upset Jackson, so Sheriff McKinney let it go, with only one more effort. Jackson, I won't be able to do much about who disturbed your dad's graveside if you don't allow me to do this. Frankly, I don't see the difference between bears, gangs, or you when it comes to digging around my dad's grave. But then he softened, because McKinney was hurt by this association. Look, Jackson said, let's do this. I'm going today to the grave to, well, tidy up. You said you gathered any evidence you could already. I should be able to fix the graveside back up, right? Try to get things back to normal. And then I'll keep going regular like, like I always do. If I see anything unusual again, there or at any of the other plots around there, I'll let you know. Then you'll have my full permission to dig all you want. But for now, let's just let this thing be. And so it was. 
McKinney agreed, though it wasn't his first choice. They just let it be. Now, the rest of us, we still all talk about it from time to time, though, and you can call it guilt, or you can call it trying to make up for past unkindnesses, but in all the speculation, in all the possible theories about who the two men in the cemetery were that night and what they were doing digging around Jackson's dad's grave, no one, not one person outright, makes the connection between Jackson and the young man in Nikes that didn't lace or the long, dark object in the back of his truck. We just let it be. After all, Jackson's dad had paid fair and square for a double plot, and local tongues had done enough wagging when he was still alive. That was Judy Ryan reading her story, Double Plot. And if you're like me, when you heard the title of the story, Double Plot, didn't you think the story was going to be about some secret plans or convoluted plots in a movie, a TV program, or a book? Little did we ever imagine it was going to be about a burial plot where quite secretly young Jackson had his mother buried next to his father, even though they had separated in life. Friends, our author tonight, Judy Ryan, received her B.A. degree from Sacramento State, followed by an M.A. from Fresno State. She currently is a full-time English instructor at Fresno City College and is the regional coordinator for Phi Beta Kappa, an honor society at the college. It was my extreme good fortune to have been her colleague for quite a number of years when I worked at the college. We certainly thank her for all she has contributed to our program and hope that she'll have more stories for us in seasons to come. And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read program again, just go online at kvpr.org and click on to Valley Writers Read. Next week, our author will be Mark Arax. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Riders Read.